The electrocardiogram, or ECG, is one of the most important devices for understanding the human heart. But what good is an ECG machine if the data from the patient's heart can't make it to their doctor? This is the problem facing Willem Eindhoven as he stands in his lab in 1905. He's just developed the first practical ECG machine. It's groundbreaking and extremely useful. It's also enormous. And it needs a cooling system that makes it almost impossible to transport. His problem is the machine is in his lab and the clinic where the doctors are is about a mile away. So Willem Eindhoven develops a new device. This one transmits the patient's heart data over the telephone to the clinic where doctors can interpret it. He calls this the telecardiogram, and it's remembered as the very first piece of telemedicine technology. Over a hundred years later, technology like this is changing the way that we receive healthcare. Today, we're going to track how inventions like the telecardiogram have allowed doctors to monitor patients remotely so they can be cared for at home. Innovations that might change healthcare for good. I'm Shannon Murphy. And this is Invisible Forces. It's an original podcast from Jefferies where we track the surprising and sometimes unlikely moments of investment and innovation that have led to medicine's biggest breakthroughs. So far in the season, we looked at therapies, not systems. But one of the fastest growing areas of healthcare focuses less on what's wrong with you and more on where your healing actually happens. A lot of patients realize that, you know what, I'd rather be in the home if I'm recovering from an illness or a surgery. The trend we're looking at today goes even further than telemedicine. It's bringing the resources of the medical system right to the patient. Today, we're talking about the at-home hospital. Raphael Rakowski is one of the leaders making this change. His story begins when his own father was hospitalized. He had a, a brain bleed as a result of being over-anticoagulated. He had brain surgery to, to remove the blood from his brain. And then a whole series of additional things happened, including getting an infection. So it was a very challenging experience because the hospital was run by friends of mine. During his father's stay at the hospital, mistakes were made in his care. And according to Raphael, these errors helped end his father's life prematurely. The discovery of the error, the loss of my father's life, Unlike a normal reaction for most people I know, instead of being bitter and vengeful and litigious, I did the opposite. Raphael didn't blame the doctors, but he did want to understand what went wrong. His background is in engineering. So first, he looked at the processes in place. The processes that are used in a hospital, which are industrial processes, workflows, handoffs, transfers, those are processes you're used to hearing about in a transmission plant for a Camaro <laughs> it's not the thing you would think of when you're caring for a patient. And in a hospital, it's so siloed. There is no one actually in charge of your care. And you can't point to anybody in the hospital and say, are you going to take care of me? He decided to work with the hospital to fix the problem. It was actually a moment of um, profound enlightenment. I asked the CEO if I could have a meeting with the CFO. This is a few weeks after my father passed. When I asked to see a copy of their profit and loss statement, their P&L, and quickly, very quickly, it became apparent to me that about 65% of the cost of care in a hospital is bricks and mortar overhead. 
That means only about a third of a hospital's budget is left for patient care on average. And that puts a lot of pressure on hospitals to recoup those costs. That pressure is driven by finances related to the fixed cost of the building, not based on the clinical needs of that patient. My thought was, why do we need to do that? Why don't we do what was done in the beginning? Why don't we bring the care to the patients? So that's exactly what he set out to do, founding his company, Medically Home. But before we learn exactly how he did it, let's go back in time. Because this is a story that traces back to investments and innovations like Willem Eindhoven's telecardiogram. And the idea of getting treated at home isn't new. If you think back, I would say really throughout history, I mean, even to the point of the ancient Greeks and the Romans, back as far as you want, physicians, healthcare providers, whatever you want to call them, um, went to the patient. That's Elizabeth Krupinski, a professor at Emory University who specialized in telemedicine throughout her career. She's the co-author of a book on the subject, Understanding Telehealth. She says that some people might have a nostalgic image of the good old-fashioned house call of the past, the kind where a doctor shows up at your house with that little black bag. But in reality, things weren't always rosy. You know, people kind of look fondly upon those days, but it probably wasn't as quaint Norman Rockwell as one would think. The first challenge is, how do you get notification to the doctor that there's a patient that needs attention? Well, somebody had to leave the home by horse or by walking, find the doctor and tell them, hey, we've got a problem. And then you've got to have that physician go all the way back. The environment in the home was probably a lot less clean than it is now. So was the home really the best environment? So over time, people moved away from healthcare at home. A lot of that disappeared right around and after World War II, really. When big hospitals started being built, things started to become centralized. Patients had cars. It was no longer horse and buggy, and physicians no longer made house calls. And that's really the way it's been for about 70 years. Today, we're seeing a renewed interest in the house call model, but it looks radically different. And that's thanks to technological innovations from all sorts of sectors. Earlier, you heard about Willem Eindhoven's telecardiogram from 1905. As early as 1910, an engineer in England developed a telephone so precise it could transmit the sound of a stethoscope on a patient's chest to their doctor miles away. In the 1920s, a hospital in Norway used two-way radios to connect sailors at sea with doctors on land. The 40s and 50s saw the advent of early teleradiology and telepathology, developed to serve veterans returning home to more rural areas. And during the space race, NASA even developed tools to care for astronauts in orbit using remote devices and satellite technology. You'd be amazed at the number of things that were developed by NASA, the Department of Defense, DARPA projects that were developed for very specialized applications, usually the military or space exploration, that have filtered over into general health care. Some of the tools that led to the at-home hospital of today have an even more surprising origin, the sporting world. One remarkable breakthrough came in the winter of 1975. 
a cross-country ski coach in Finland was having a hard time tracking his athlete's heart rate in winter weather. One day he ran into a professor of electronics at the local university, and he asked, is it possible to remotely monitor the heart rate of his athletes while they were exercising? The professor succeeded and developed the first wireless heart rate monitor. It's because of the investment of innovations of all these sectors, military, space exploration, or even sports, that we have the ability to monitor the vitals of patients wherever they are. One huge factor that's made the home hospital possible is that our tech tools have gotten smaller. The technologies that were out there, even as recently as you know five years ago, were these rather large devices and platforms and dedicated telemedicine portals. Progressively, they've gotten smaller and smaller. My colleague Brian Tanklet is a healthcare services analyst at Jefferies. So he follows trends in this space, and he sees the immense capacity we have today with the internet and new telecommunications technology. Historically, if you think about it, you know, we had the phone, <laughs> right? If you send a patient home, the only thing you could do is call them. But where we stand today, you know, with Bluetooth technology, with obviously with Wi-Fi, there are so many devices that you can send the data up, you know, to a data center. So we're talking about, you know, things such as a pulse oximeter, you can do a heart monitor. Now that you can you know, monitor them real time, it just makes it easier for us to do this. And then the interventions are not that hard. So all of these inventions stacked up to create the remote patient monitoring capabilities we have today. But we're still so reliant on a centralized hospital model. How can we put this potential into action? That's the next chapter of the story. Let's get back to Raphael Rakowski and Medically Home. Remember, after his father's tragic passing, he came to believe patients might be better off at home. And science actually backs this up. Comparing a, a hospital stay in your home compared to an institutional setting like a hospital, the results over three decades and multiple randomized clinical trials, both here and abroad, have been consistent. You're safer at home. You recover faster at home, your cognitive decline is less at home, you have a less chance of dying at home, you have less chance of getting an infection at home, and all of those really obvious and fairly consistent metrics. But to put his idea into practice, Raphael doesn't want to start with patients who only need minimal care. He wants to start with the most acute cases. I really wanted to take home the complicated patients that need to be in the hospital for sure at a very high level, because I knew if I could do that, if you can build a safe, scalable model of care for high acuity patients, you can handle almost everybody. His idea is based on military medicine, where there's a command center, a field medic, and a soldier in the field. It's a three-way relationship, command center, the physicians guiding the care, the clinician in the field, and the patient at home, supported by a lot of technology. So Raphael's team transports patients back home and sets them up like a temporary hospital room with medical supplies and an iPad so they can connect with doctors in the command center. Over a century ago, Willem Eindhoven broke ground by sending ECG signals over the telephone. After decades of work, we can measure all kinds of vitals on devices the size of a watch, from blood oxygen levels to perspiration or even brain waves. And we can connect with healthcare at all hours. But while Raphael felt his idea was common sense, initially investors didn't feel the same way. 
I shared it with people back then, everyone looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and it took many, many years. And, and we self-funded for the first roughly nine years. We had to put our own money into this because no one would give us any funding for this idea. So yeah, investors were very polite and then threw me out. No one believed his idea. But that all changed once Medically Home helped their first patient. Chuck uh, was 92. He was very ill. He had been previously hospitalized six times in the previous 18 months. Chuck had cancer, pneumonia, and pancreatitis. He was exactly the type of patient Raphael built Medically Home for. All in all, Chuck stayed in their care for 42 days, much longer than the usual hospital stay. But after those 42 days, he was healthy again. We considered that not just obviously a clinical success, a validation of all these years of work, but just confirmed everything I believed all these many years of extraordinary trial and headwinds. Since then, Medically Home has continued to prosper, with investors getting behind the project. Kaiser Permanente and Mayo Clinic became D partners, and then boom, COVID. And the rest of the story is just tailwinds all the way. I'm just in shock that it took a pandemic, sadly, and a lot of loss of life to catch everyone's attention that the hospital model is flawed. My colleague sees companies like Medically Home or Contessa or Dispatch Health as part of a shift in the industry. This sector is projected to exceed $20 billion by 2025. And he's seen this trend accelerate during the pandemic. The hospitals were full, but there's still people who needed care. So that really accelerated, really, the adoption and even just the recognition that these programs are effective. It has reduced things such as rehospitalizations and emergency room visits. So in other words, these guys are showing that they actually deliver better quality care based on our historical or traditional metrics. So it's helping those who stay home for their care and everyone in the mainstream healthcare system. Here's Raphael again. We can safely move about 30% of the patients currently hospitalized around the world to a home setting with this model. And that's the goal. In essence, create 30% more beds by moving patients to the home. And Brian predicts that a lot of these shifts are here to stay. And I think a lot of these changes are permanent because once you change the mindset of a referring physician and they realize that, oh, I can refer to a to home health instead of a nursing home, or I can do my surgeries in an outpatient setting instead of going into the hospital, that just changes the workflow and the dynamic in terms of how they're thinking about how they should be approaching care delivery. Brian says that attitudes and approaches to outpatient care continue to evolve. You know, about three to four years ago, I started telling clients that, you know, my vision of the hospital is that eventually it will evolve to where it's basically your ICU it's your emergency room. The surgeries that are today being performed in the hospital, I mean, your top surgical procedures by volume in the hospital are, are knee replacements and hip replacements. And now we have data that shows that in the span of five years, we went from you know roughly under 10% of knee or joint replacement procedures were done outside of an inpatient hospital setting. Today, we're in the you know low to mid 20% range. And our expectation is that that will go up to north of 50% within the next five years. So think about that, right? You're getting your knee replaced. You show up to these outpatient surgery centers at seven in the morning. By one o'clock, you're walking up and downstairs, and you have brand new knees. 
And <laughs> it's just fascinating how technology has changed. Our telemedicine expert, Elizabeth Krupinski, is also looking forward to more innovation in the future. We've heard that in the past, remote patient monitoring tech came from the military or NASA or even sports. Now, she says, it's coming from tech giants, too. Some of the big players now are Google, are Amazon, are Microsoft. And these are companies that have nothing to do with healthcare. Yet they are changing the face of healthcare already. Uh, you know, the smartwatch has the capability of measuring your heart rate, your blood pressure, all these things. And you hear anecdotal stories about, well, my smartwatch told me to call my doctor because it detected X. And wow, that really saved my life. Okay, that's not the intent of the smartwatch and it's not an FDA approved medical device or anything. But these are the types of companies that are developing technologies for everyday use that are meant to improve your health and well-being. And it's not just the advancements in this technology that make it so promising. As health monitoring tools become smaller and cheaper, more people will have access to them. I, I think everybody's going to have these types of devices in their home. Healthy patients as well. Patients are going to be utilizing these technologies to monitor themselves. What's going to become difficult is we have the capability of collecting a ton of data 24-7 problem is, what the heck do we do with all that information? And from all different devices, this is where artificial intelligence is going to come into play, is dealing with this massive amount of information that we can get from healthcare devices, miniaturized devices in the home that can collect amazing amounts of information about health status. It seems like a simple idea, going back to the earliest days of medicine, bringing care to the patient. But today's home hospital is a massive improvement on the house call of the past, borrowing brilliance from inventors and investments in all kinds of sectors. But what if Willem Eindhoven hadn't attempted to send heart data over a telephone? What if that Finnish ski coach hadn't met up with an electronics professor to figure out the first ever wireless heart monitor? And what if Raphael Rakowski hadn't taken such a close look at the overhead costs of a hospital? It's the alchemy of creativity in military or space science, engineering, sports, and technology that allows us to keep patients where they want to be, at home. And as these devices continue to evolve, their impacts will only grow. If they can provide preventative care from the comfort of your own home, maybe someday you'll rely less on drugs, therapies, and other treatments as well. You've been listening to Invisible Forces, an original podcast from Jeffries. I'm Shannon Murphy. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcasting app so you can never miss an episode. See you in two weeks. This podcast may not be distributed or reproduced. The podcast is not research, a recommendation, or an offer to buy or sell. It is provided for information only. Views constitute best judgment as of the published date and may change without notice. The data used is not independently verified. No representation is made as to accuracy, including as to future events or reasonableness of assumptions. Views are those of the individuals identified. Jeffries and its agents are not liable for damage from the podcast. Jeffries is not providing advice as to legal, tax, accounting, or other matters. Additional disclaimers are on jeffries.com.